Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast for Thursday, April 27, 2006. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. In today's podcast, we will discuss an article from the April edition of Critical Connections, which focuses on infectious disease in the intensive care unit. With us today is Vera DiPaolo, MD, Associate Chief of Medicine and Director of the Intensive Care Unit at Memorial Hospital of Rhode Island. She is also an Associate Professor of Medicine at Brown Medical School. Her article in the April issue, Catheter-Related Bloodstream Infections, Can We Make It Safer for Our Patients?, outlined several common questions healthcare workers should consider to help prevent these infections in the intensive care unit. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. DePaolo. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Savell. When we were talking about this earlier, one of the uh, most interesting aspects from my perspective was to hear a little bit more about the Rhode Island ICU Collaborative, which, uh, from what I understand, is trying to tackle some of these issues, some of these bundles. And maybe if you could uh, tell the listeners a little bit about it, that would be great. Oh, I'm happy to. And we are very excited about this. Everyone's focus has been on making hospital care in general and ICU care in particular much safer for patients. And a main point of focus is when we look at infectious disease issues, particularly those that um, a patient are is at risk for given the fact that they have central venous catheters and many other catheters in place. Rhode Island has always been a leader in quality initiatives. There have been many initiatives that have moved forward through the Hospital Association of Rhode Island, the Quality Partners, Quality Institute, and the individual hospitals um, themselves. And as a group, those quality organizations came together with the help of Johns Hopkins quality research group and moved forward to put together the Rhode Island ICU Collaborative. Now, we are really pleased in Rhode Island because we were successful in getting every single hospital to participate and every unit in every hospital to be part of this plan. And essentially, it looks at those basic strategies that have been outlined by CDC and the literature that have been shown to really make a difference from an evidence-based plan of care in the outcome of patients. And um, when did the uh, concept of this Rhode Island uh, ICU ICU collaborative first begin? A couple years ago? or, Or can you tell us more about that? I think that the initial discussions actually began in September 2004 
there had always been a big focus on quality and quality improvement initiatives in each of the individual hospitals. But sometime in September of 2004, actually our Congressman Patrick Kennedy um, brought together the stakeholders at a table to have a discussion about about just great quality um, initiatives in ICUs in the state. He invited Peter Pronovost from Johns Hopkins University, and, um, and we discussed the topic. At the table, there were also the quality groups, so Quality Institute, Quality Partners of Rhode Island, the Hospital Association of Rhode Island. In addition, there were hospitals, um, the ICU directors, nursing managers, and there were administrative um, representatives, in some cases CEOs and high-level administrators. In addition, also our third-party payer representatives were at the table, and that's what's really made this such a great collaborative is that it really has the buy-in of all of the interested parties. And uh, from a from a technical standpoint, if if one of the hospitals in Rhode Island joins in, as you said, all of them have. Uh, what does it mean for that particular hospital? Are there a set of uh, guidelines that are implemented through the hospital's critical care committee, or is there access to a database, or is there data that is put into a database? Well, we work with the Johns Hopkins Quality Research Group, specifically with Peter Pronovost, Sean Barinholtz, um, with Chris Goschel, and actually are implementing a model that they implemented at Johns Hopkins and then brought to Michigan, um, which the article references the Keystone Project in Michigan, which did demonstrate decreases in infection rates in the intensive care unit, a reduction in length of stay, and that all translates into saved lives. Now, when a hospital joins on, or when we began the collaborative, because I'm really pleased to say that everyone joined on at the same time at the beginning of the collaborative, we started out by surveying the culture in the individual units. Essentially, what were people's perspectives of their individual unit, of the concept of care, of their given um, role in terms of that unit and the provision of care to critically ill patients? Once we had an idea of the uh, culture of the units, we moved forward with educational sessions. There was, in the fall of 2005, there was actually a one-day educational seminar for all of the different team um, members that came together, listened to presentations, reviewed some of the evidence-based literature, and reviewed the data collection that would need to go on. In fact, each of the hospitals collects data on the number of infections related to the number of catheter days in their intensive care units. We're also moving beyond the issue of catheter-related infection into the area of ventilator-associated pneumonia. The whole concept of the Rhode Island Critical Care Collaborative is to really move forward with good, safe, um, quality care. Let me say that many of these interventions 
which are evidence-based and which have been in the literature, were already implemented by several of the hospitals. And those hospitals were having very good results uh, from a safety perspective for their patients. So this was an exciting opportunity to come together as a state to involve absolutely every unit. And we're pleased that we can kind of show other states across the country that states can come together for the benefit of patients and for their good outcomes. Well, and and as you were saying, in, in many cases, giving hospitals credit for good things that they were already doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, some of the things needed to be changed a bit because one of the issues that the article refers to is the fact that there has not been a unifying definition for catheter-related infection and how exactly do you define it and which infections do you count and is it a surveillance definition or a clinical definition that you use? And then lastly, how do you address or appropriately describe the added risk that a patient will have if, in fact, they have multiple catheters in place? And so hospitals that had already grappled with some of those issues for the good of the collaborative and the success of the collaborative all came together on a common definition and adjusted their methods so that as a collaborative we could move forward with one set standard. Well, this is, um, I mean, it's a little off topic, but it's a topic that I like to talk about very much is whether or not, and specifically with either VAP or catheter-related infections, measuring process versus outcomes. And I remember I discussed this with Dr. Gropper in a a previous uh, Surviving Sepsis Campaign CCM podcast that, you know, especially as it relates to this and some of the Barinholtz data that you want to be measuring that we're putting in the lines as safely as possible, that we're doing everything we can to make sure that they're taken out. But as you're saying, the outcomes are often less clear, exactly what you're describing, right? Exactly. Um, Some of the institutions in our collaborative have had wonderful, wonderfully low uh, infection rates, and it is because they have consistently focused on implementing the evidence-based strategies. That is, the site that you choose to put the the central venous catheter in, choosing a site where there is not a high skin density. Many of the hospitals have actually implemented and have been utilizing the evidence-based strategies that were outlined in CDC reports that the Berenholz article refers to that many other articles have reported great success with. That is, When choosing a site for the placement of the catheter, choosing a site where the skin flora may be at a lesser density, using maximal barrier precautions, uh, cleansing the skin with a chlorhexidine prep, having materials in a particular place, um, perhaps on a lion cart, so that so that it's easy to have all of the appropriate um, equipment and empowering the nurses to stop the procedure if it doesn't appear to be going according to protocol, etc. Absolutely, <laughs> thank you. Um, yes, and you know, practicing critical care truly is a team sport. It is the skill of each person on the team that comes to the bedside of the patient for the best outcome. And having the eyes and the hands of the nurse available to you 
and the judgment helps us to really bring great care to patients, hopefully translating into super outcomes. You know, like many other areas of critical care that are interesting, there are controversies, and I thought we could address a couple of them today, not to come to any major conclusions, but at least address some of the topics. And and one of the ones that I'm uh, always discussing with the residents is the insertion site. And this is something that uh, at least in my, from my perspective, has changed over the years because we've developed more common presence of sonograms for making IJs safer, and yet the CDC has come out from an infectious disease standpoint recommending subclavians routinely. And I was wondering how your collaborative and perhaps your intensive care unit has addressed uh, some of these particular issues regarding the placement site choice. We are trying to follow the recommendations of the CDC. The, from my readings, it seems that their selection of the subclavian site is really based on density of skin flora at that site. But there are clearly times when it is not possible to utilize that site, either previous surgical procedures or um, equipment that's, that already may be in that area of the body, and so it's not really an accessible site. It, and sometimes the patient's body habitus makes it a much more difficult site of insertion, um, in, thereby increasing the possibility for some mechanical complications. Now, ultrasonography has really helped there, but I believe that the best way to approach it is to truly look at each patient individually. Um, our collaborative is focusing on the subclavian site, but realizing that a patient needs to be evaluated as an individual, and if there is something that makes that site less safe, then choosing the next best site. So that a, an individual intensivist still should be able to use their clinical judgment to balance mechanical and infectious complications or risks. Absolutely, and that is something that the, the collaborative really advocates. One of the other uh, controversies, and it probably is very interesting how your collaborative uh, addressed this particular issue, uh, is the role of antibiotic impregnated catheters. And I know there's uh, uh, still some degree of controversy in that every uh, institution has to deal with when deciding both from a cost perspective as well as uh, theoretical concerns uh, about that. Maybe if you could talk about that. As you know, the literature really has shown that there has been a reduction in contamination rates when these catheters are used. The cost savings in terms of um, what it would cost for an episode of line sepsis is, is truly great and really balances the additional cost of the catheter. But with many different types of hospitals in our collaborative, and it's not possible, and, and it was never the intention of the collaborative to make an across-the-board recommendation for which types of catheters to use. One of the real important things to remember is that all of the studies and all of the projects that I referenced in the article were done without the use of an antibiotic impregnated catheter or an antiseptic impregnated catheter. These were results 
positive results with reduction in infection rates that were seen by just using very good evidence-based strategies as outlined in the CDC recommendations and in the uh, Barenholtz article. So it's possible to achieve those great rates without using an antibiotic or antiseptic impregnated catheter. In those cases, when utilizing the evidence-based recommendations or strategies, there's still difficulty in achieving the rates we desire, then CDC does recommend utilizing those specific types of catheters. I guess the the two-part question is, one, are they being used in your hospital or uh, throughout the collaborative, or does each hospital sort of look at its own data and make uh, make a decision, or is it on a patient-by-patient basis? How, how, How have you been addressing some of those issues? In my hospital, they are not being specifically used. However, we have considered them in certain patients. There is no collaborative-wide recommendation that's made, and... Um, just as we would expect the ICU attending the intensivist, the team at the bedside to make those individual patient decisions, we would expect them to also make the same types of individual decisions regarding the catheter depending on what their antibiogram is in their intensive care unit, what a given patient's infectious disease condition is. So, yeah, we do allow that that um, openness, that ease of decision on the part of the intensivist. One of the other uh, most controversial areas is obviously diagnosis. And I thought one of the uh, topics that we could discuss today w- was twofold. Is one, do you do things like sending the tip for catheter? I understand that, I mean, I'm well aware that, that even the concept of sending, uh, changing a catheter over a wire is, is becoming discussable. And then finally, um, Uh, differential time to positivity. Is that something that you're using uh, in your institution? We, in my institution, we do use the differential time to positivity. And this gets back to that issue of surveillance definition um, versus clinical definition and recognizing the fact that there are many times that we treat patients for a presumed catheter-related infection. So in our patients, I'm going to speak specifically to my institution, when we remove lines from patients and there is a suspicion that there's infection, we do send catheter tips. The issue of a uh, differential time to positivity really refers to drawing blood cultures from both the catheter and the patient, a non-catheterized site, and then comparing the time to positivity. And if, in fact, the catheter culture becomes positive two or more hours before the peripheral blood, then that is presumed to be a catheter-related infection. One of the questions I, I had for you is uh, I know that uh, when uh, change occurs in ICUs, getting a culture change is not easy. And uh, one of the major culture issues is having the nurses feel comfortable stopping a procedure if they don't feel it's going according to plan. Was that difficult, integrating the nursing staff into uh, these uh, the Rhode Island, the collaborative issues around catheter-related bloodstream infections? I think that it's different for different institutions. 
In my institution, we've always worked as a collaborative team. When we round, we have our nurses with us. We have a clinical pharmacist as part of our team, a nutritionist, respiratory therapists who are present. And so our approach to the patient on a daily basis is really a team, um, a, a team approach. And so consequently, our team members feel very comfortable in offering an opinion. I know that there are some institutions where there has not been um, that culture of a team approach and there have been special attention or steps added in between to allow the nurses and other team members to feel comfortable enough and empower them enough to stop procedures when they feel that the evidence-based guidelines that have been outlined are not being followed. And specifically what I refer to is a strategy whereby nurses are able to call their ICU director and just inform them that they really felt that during the insertion of this line by a physician who was inserting the line that perhaps they hadn't specifically met the the outlined criteria that they had for their unit. And this has been a nice bridging step to help nurses feel more empowered, to help other physicians who participate in patient care in a given unit to understand that it's truly more of a team concept and, and this project is working to empower nurses. But many of the hospitals in our collaborative actually have an intensivist model of care with a team approach. And so for some of our hospitals, that really wasn't a big issue. Well, you know, it would be wonderful if our patients didn't require central lines, and it would be wonderful if they never got infected, and it would be even more wonderful if there was some sort of a serum marker that we could measure at the bedside, and if it was greater than a certain number, the line had to come out, and if it's less than that, we could keep it in. But because of all those problems, we're going to be dealing with this catheter-related bloodstream infection issue, and there will remain these controversies. And I think because of that, it's very important that uh, all intensivists try to get some sort of consensus as to the best way to minimize the risk to our patients. And I'm very grateful that you've been able to help share some of your thoughts today with the members of SCCM on this very, very important topic. Well, thank you very much. I think the exciting thing is that by utilizing strategies that are well outlined in the literature, it's possible for every hospital in every state, for every intensivist and every doctor who cares for for patients who are critically ill to really bring about a culture of change in their units. Um, we encourage every state to follow the lead of the ICU collaborative in Rhode Island and to try to put these strategies into practice so that we can all have better outcomes for our patients. And this isn't the only area. I mean, there are several projects. You mentioned the Surviving Sepsis Campaign earlier, and they are doing that very same thing um, in trying to make it safer for patients with sepsis and have better outcomes. And so translating literature um, evidence into actual clinical practice will only be a very positive thing for our patients. We've had the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Vera DiPaolo, MD. She is the Associate Chief of Medicine and Director of the Intensive Care Unit at Memorial Hospital in Rhode Island, and she is an Associate Professor of Medicine at Brown Medical School. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. 
This concludes our podcast for Thursday, April 27, 2006. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. Critical Connections is the official bi-monthly news magazine of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. And please call 1-847-493-6498 to give feedback or ask questions about the iCritical Care podcast. Thanks again for listening. Stay up to date on advancements in the critical care profession by attending the Society of Critical Care Medicine's new educational series, Critical Care Academy, giving you tools to increase your critical care skills and knowledge. Critical Care Academy features the adult and pediatric multi-professional critical care review courses on July 18th through the 22nd, 2006. Prior to the review courses, take part in the new Clinical Strategies and Skills Simulation in Pediatric Critical Care or the expanded American Board of Internal Medicine Critical Care Self-Evaluation Process Module Review on July 16th through 17th to enhance your board review process. Tailor your learning experience to suit your specific needs at one convenient location, saving you time and money. Register today to guarantee your course selections by speaking with a SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or visit www.sccm.org.